Good morning, good morning, good morning, Discover Church. How's everybody feeling this morning? Yes. Man, it's good to see you. So glad you guys are here. Hey, I just want to piggyback on what Erica was saying uh, about our Christmas for the Northland outreach yesterday, man. Thank you, thank you, thank you, church, for making a difference. You know, our vision as a church, why we're here, is we want to see our city changed by Jesus one life at a time. And the way that we do that is by helping people discover life, discover belonging, discover purpose, ultimately so they can make a difference. And what you did yesterday is that you were making a difference so that we can start the cycle over with some new people to help them discover life, discover belonging, discover purpose, and ultimately, hopefully, so they'll begin to make a difference. That's, that's kind of how the, the cycle just continues to cycle. And so that's kind of what we were doing yesterday. I'm just so thankful for you, proud of you, humbled to be a pastor. It was awesome for me to watch you serving people yesterday and just thankful for I want to give a shout out to a couple people. I want to give a shout out to Pastor Chris for leading the effort uh, in that process yesterday. Um, man, appreciate you, Chris. And Chris assembled an awesome team. He had Judy Bryant, Heather Mosey, Darlene Falter, Gretchen Austin, Debbie Johnson. Uh, we're on that team, really kind of spearheading things. We had small group leaders helping out, people serving in comms, helping uh, get the word out to our folks and, 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 and shining bright the light of Jesus. And we had security here to make sure that we were all saved. Just listen, I, I, here's the reason why I say all these names, because one person can't make any of that happen. It takes, it takes a body of people working together to make an impact. And that's what yesterday was. And so thank you, church, for making a difference. Thank you for impacting our community. We are in now in week three in our series that we've called Fighting Blind. And I think the, the graphic on the screen shows it really well. Would you rather be the dude on the left or the dude on the right? Okay. You really had me nervous. Like, man, maybe I just totally overshot my understanding of how much people don't want to fight with a blindfold on. Maybe you just want to do that. I don't, I don't know. Um, but yeah, nobody, nobody, if you're going to go into a fight, you don't want to go into a fight blindfolded. I saw a funny video yesterday of, uh, of these two kids. They were playing one-on-one -on -one basketball blindfolded. First one to score one. I'm just going to tell you, I spent way too much of my time yesterday watching that and laughing. It was hilarious. Dude's trying to play defense like the other dude is over there with the ball and he's playing defense over here. And it's like Marco Polo. He hears the ball and he comes over. Listen, nobody wants to go into a fight that way. But what we've been learning is that unless we have the right mindset, unless we have the right approach, that's what often happens is we go into the many, many, many fights of life. Just let me ask a question. How many of we can be honest in church? How many of you got into a fight in some way? Maybe it was a fight with a spouse a sibling, a child, uh, a coworker, someone on Facebook, a neighbor. How many of you had a fight this week? T today, this hour, right? How many, how many of you, right? So let's make it a little bit more personal. How many of you had a fight within yourself? Like there was some area of temptation that at some point this week you were like, get behind me, Satan. I'm not doing that, right? Like there are eight honest people in this church. The rest of y'all going to hell. <laughs> Listen, we go through fights. Life is a fight. We have things that come at us from all different directions. So we've been learning how to win 
in the fights of life. And here's what we've learned so far. We learned in week one that everything is spiritual, that, that, that everything that you see physically, every fight, every conflict that you have physically in this world, whether it's a, a verbal conflict, whether it's a physical conflict, whether it's an internal conflict, whatever it is, that, that the physical part is only just a part of what's happening, that there are spiritual forces at work behind the scenes. And, and listen, I know if you're new to church or faith or Jesus, um, listen, that can sound really hokey. And I, I know it sounds kind of space agey kind of thing, but it's true. You have to go back and listen to the message from week one as we unpack that. And that's really, really good news for us if we understand that everything is spiritual because what that means is, is that whoever we have the conflict with is not the person that we're ultimately fighting with. That the person that we're in conflict with, whether it's the person in the mirror or it's someone else, that they're never really the person that we're having the conflict with. That it's, it, it, it's, it's, it's spiritual forces behind the scenes that, that, are, that are constantly striving to steal, kill, and destroy the things in our life. But Jesus is also constantly working behind the scenes to help us to experience what it means to have life and life abundantly. That's what he promised in John chapter 10 and verse 10. And then last week, we learned how to approach the fights, that the, our approach to a conflict is often just as important, if not more important, than the tactics that we deploy in the conflict. Because if you approach things the wrong way, it doesn't matter how good your strategy is in the conflict, you're probably going to lose. So this week, what we're gonna do is we're, 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 we're shifting a little bit. We, we've learned about the mindset to understand that everything is spiritual. We've understood the significance of approach. And now we're gonna begin to get crazy, crazy practical of what do we do in the fights of life. And it's so important that you understand that the mindset and the approach are necessary for you to wrap your brain around and begin to orient your life around before you jump into the tactics of the battle because, because it plays a significant role in how we deploy the tactics of the battle. And so this week, we're going to begin talking about the practical and the tactical and how we actually fight the fights of life. In order to win the fights of life, it's going to require that at times we, we have to do some, some things that are going to seem odd. In order to win in the fights of life, in order to win the internal fights, the external fights, um, the fights with our loved ones and our boss and all of those people, it's gonna require that we do some odd things. And it's really gonna require that we make some, some serious choices. And so I've titled today's message, Uncommon Methods. Because if we want to experience the victory that Jesus wants us to have, we're going to have to do some uncommon things that aren't always gonna make sense. So I wanna help unpack this today. I want to dive into this today and help us to see that these methods that we have to deploy are ultimately choices that we have to make. And here's the first choice. The first choice you have to make is you have to pick the right battle. You have to pick the right battle. Here's why this is so important, because I talk to so many people who are so exhausted and so wore out and so, so fatigued by the, the rigors of life because Y'all are fighting somebody else's battle that they never asked you to help them fight. Or you done stuck your nose into somebody's business that they didn't ask you to stick your nose into. Or you found yourself in a conflict that you were never supposed to be in in the first place, but somehow you just happened to be there. The wrong place at the wrong time. And when we don't pick the right battles, we end up wasting a lot of energy, we end up wasting a lot of effort, and that, that drains our energy 
for the moments when we end up in the battles that we're supposed to be in fighting the good fight. I want to illustrate how stupid we look sometimes when we pick the wrong fights. I was in third grade. I was in third grade. I had just moved to town. I was in a new school called Hillcrest Elementary. And uh, I didn't know anybody, um, didn't know anybody from Adam. And, and so we, we were on the playground one day, kind of the first part of school. And, uh, you know, these two boys started going at it as much as third and fourth grade boys can go at it. Um, it wasn't a UFC situation, I can promise you. Um, it, was, it was, you know, everything that you would expect a third and fourth grade boy fight to look like. And immediately, as soon as the fight happened, the entire, you know, all the kids just, you know, they just gathered around. It's amazing how perfect of a circle kids can make in that situation. It's amazing. And, uh, and so the fight's happening, and I wish I could explain the rationale for what I did, but I can't. I didn't, it, it wasn't, I did not do what I did out of some sense of loyalty because I didn't even know who these two kids are. It wasn't a situation like somebody was picking on my best friend and so I just jumped into the fight to help them. No, I don't even know who they were and I don't really even understand why I felt like it was necessary. The only thing that I know was my favorite video game at the time was Mortal Kombat. And one of the characters on, on the game, uh, one of his you know, signature moves was a leg sweep. You know, you come in and, you know, and it, you can tell how good I am at that, right? Expert. And his move was a leg sweep. And so I don't know why I did what I did. You can see where this is going. And so I'm watching this fight take place and they're, you know, your mama so this and your mama so that and my dad can beat up your dad and all this stuff. And I'm sitting over there just trying to find my spot. And for what reason, I don't know. I came in like Batman and did a leg sweep. Perfect execution. Kid fell to the ground. It was awesome. What I didn't really consider was the significance of timing and how long it takes for the authorities to show up. And so shortly after the leg sweep happened, me and the other kid, we've not even had a chance to get fully stood up yet. And here comes the teacher breaking up the fight. Y'all get out of here. Y'all get out of here. Go back to your room. And then, and then the two kids that were in the fight that were that started the whole thing, they got in trouble. And so did I. I got the same trouble, the same consequence that they got, even though all I did was come in and with a leg sweep. It was stupid. It was pointless. I had no reason to even be involved with that. I don't even know why they were fighting. But I inserted myself into the situation and I picked the wrong battles. And anytime that we insert ourselves into unnecessary battles, anytime that we don't, we don't choose the right battles, it is equally as stupid because we end up wasting the energy that God wants us to have for the battles that only we can fight. So how do we do this? How do we pick the right battles? Well, here's where the uncommon methods start to come in because it's a little odd. It's not exactly what you would think. Here's how you pick the right battles. You pick the right battles by making sure that you guard your heart. Hmm. Preacher man, that don't make no sense. Now, perhaps you've heard that the best offense is a good defense or that defense wins 
championships. Do we need to start over? Right, like that, that's, that's, a, that's a saying, especially in, in sports and in football. And apparently for the University of Georgia, it doesn't because Alabama just beat them terribly last week. That's another, another issue for another day. But here's the deal. Anytime you're gonna be in the battle, you've gotta learn both defense and offense. And what I wanna talk to you first is I wanna talk to you about this idea of guarding your heart. This is what Proverbs 4.23 says. It says, keep your heart or guard your heart with all diligence for out of it spring the issues of life. You see, this might seem odd tactically and strategically that the, the, the best way that I pick the right battles is to guard our heart. I don't even see the connection. But the reason why it seems odd is because we often don't understand the role that our heart plays in all of the issues of our life. And when I talk about the heart, when the Bible talks about the heart, it rarely is referring to the fist-sized muscle that's pumping blood through your body. No, most of the times when the Bible refers to the heart, it's referring to a very wide-ranging uh, area that, 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 that in, uh, uh, includes our mind and our thoughts. It includes our will and our emotions. It includes the depository of all of our wisdom and understanding. It, it's, it's the thing that serves as kind of the, the, the nucleus or the epicenter of, of the motivation for everything that we say and everything that we do. And the problem is the reason why most of us don't think about this idea of guarding our heart is because most of us want to believe that that part of our lives, that part of our body is naturally good. It's the reason why people, when they're offering great advice, say things like, just follow your gut or follow your heart. Can I tell you, let me just talk to the single people in the room for just a second. If somebody ever tells you when it comes to relationship advice, follow your heart, you should do one of two things. You should either one, immediately defriend that person or two, slap them or perhaps do both because follow your heart is one of the worst pieces of advice anyone could ever give you when it comes to relationships or anything else. You see, the problem is, is that you and I have a distorted view about how good our heart is. And the reason why I say it's distorted is because even though that you and I have lied, even though you and I have cheated, even though you and I probably have stolen something at some point in your life, even though you and I both have a tendency to elevate things above our God, even though you and I have a tendency to identify things and devote our time, energy, and talent to things that have nothing to do with God or advancing his kingdom or loving people, we still believe that our heart is naturally good. You see, that's a distortion. We're self-deluded. And I'm including myself in that, so I'm not just speaking ill of you, I'm speaking ill of me as well. That we have, a, a, we have an ability to overly estimate the goodness of our own heart and our own intentions. But the Bible gives us an incredibly accurate depiction and description of our heart and its intentions, far more accurate than anything that you and I could ever provide on our own. Jeremiah 17, nine says this, that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, who can know it? You know what this is saying? It's saying that our hearts, right, our mind, our emotions, our will, all of our wisdom and knowledge and understanding, it is deceitful. It constantly lies to us. It constantly wants to convince us that what is right is wrong and what is wrong is right. 
It's deceitful above all things, and it is desperately wicked, so much so that nobody could truly know it. When it says know it, it means to be able to truly see it and accurately describe how it really is. What's better is that Proverbs goes on in Proverbs twenty-two fifteen and says this, that foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. Now, I want you, I want you to consider this. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. If you have ever seen a child throw a temper tantrum, you don't have to be convinced in that moment that there's something wrong with that child. There's something inside that child that is wrong. Listen, teenagers, I love you, but I'm just gonna tell you, I used to be here, so I am speaking to the choir. If you've ever seen a teenager throw a temper tantrum, you know that there is foolishness bound up in the heart of that child. And here's the news flash for all the grown folks. If you have ever seen a grown person throw a tantrum, listen, I'm just gonna be honest, I'm gonna confess something. The week of Thanksgiving, we were leaving to go to my mom's house. Your boy threw a 45-minute temper tantrum because we were 20 minutes late. I mean, you wanna talk about just setting the tone right off the bat. It, that, that fight carried over into the next day. All right, so I'm speaking from experience. Listen, there, we don't just magically become unstupid when we get older. There's foolishness that is bound up. And right now there's some elbows jabbing some people saying, uh-huh, are you listening? You taking notes? And right now what you don't know is the person that you're elbowing the ribs is saying, dear Lord, please, I pray you would help them know this message is for them. There's some teenagers right now that are feeling some looks from some moms and some dads, and there's some teenagers that are going, you ain't perfect, your stuff stinks too. Teenagers, I got your back, all right? Why is this? Well, Romans 3.23 tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You see, there is a nature that is inside every single one of us that we were born, my children, as much as I love them, as much as I thought they were perfect. When Micah was born the first time legitimately in my life, I mean, I'm a preacher, so y'all know I'm not speechless ever. But the first time in my life, I legitimately was trying to say words, but nothing came out. I was physically, literally speechless. And as beautiful and as perfect as my babies were, what I did not want to acknowledge and what is easier for me to acknowledge on some days now than what it was the day that they were born there is evil inside of you. The first diaper was the first, it was coming out. The evil was coming out of them. But listen, we don't, we don't like talking like this because it doesn't make us feel good. It doesn't fit the narrative that, you know, babies are cute and perfect and amazing, and they are. But the same thing that would lead the most evil people to do the most evil things dwells inside every single one of our children when they were born. And it dwells inside every single one of us. It's called sin. And it's not sin as in the individual thing that I did that was sinful. No, no, no. I sin because I'm a sinner. I have a nature that is in direct opposition to God. I don't, I'm not naturally a good person. Nobody has ever been naturally a good person except for one, and they named this entire movement after him. 
I'm talking about Jesus, by the way. You see, we're all, we've all sinned and we've all fallen short of God's glory. And because of this sin nature, it, it causes this, this, this deceitfulness and this wickedness that is naturally inside of us. That the enemy wants to constantly use and twist and manipulate to still kill and destroy. That it, it lies to us and it pulls us into places, into situations and spaces that we shouldn't be in. I want to keep reading in Proverbs chapter 4. And I want you to see the significance of our heart, right? Everything that our heart controls. Proverbs 4.24 says this. Put away from you a deceitful mouth, but put perverse lips far from you. You see, our heart, our emotions, our will, it controls what we say. Verse 25, let your eyes look straight ahead and your eyelids look right before you. You see, our heart controls what we see. Verse 26, ponder the path of your feet and let all your ways be established. It, it, our heart controls what we think. Verse 27, do not turn to the right or to the left or remove your foot from evil. Our heart controls where we go. You see, here's the deal. If you and I were to sit down and have a meal together and I was asked you to, I asked you to think about, are there any are there any fights that you've been in, any conflicts that when you look back on those conflicts, when you look back on those situations that you regret? I want you to take them, I want you to think right now. If you get it, I want you to think, if you get a, when you can think back in the history of you and all of the fights and all of the conflicts that you've been in, can you think of one that you've regretted? Just raise your hand when you get it, right? Raise your hand, raise your hand, raise your hand, okay? If you and I were to sit down for lunch and we were to talk about why did you regret that fight? At some point, you would probably go, well, this happened and this happened and this happened. And as you peeled the onion back further and further and further and you got down to the root of it, I would be willing to bet that at the root of it, you would find that you ended up saying something that you should not have said. You were looking at something that you should not have been looking at. You jump to a conclusion and assume the worst about a situation that you should not have thought. Or you physically found yourself in a place that you should not have been. You see, I would be willing to bet that in those conflicts and in those fights that you regret, the root source of it is that you saw something, said something, went somewhere, or thought something that was wrong. That you shouldn't have been. Why? because your heart is deceitfully wicked. It will constantly lie to you. It will constantly make you believe that you were justified in saying whatever it is you're getting ready to say, justified in looking at whatever it is you're getting ready to look at, justified in going wherever it is that you wanna go and all the reasons in the world why you can justify why you have jumped to the conclusion that you've jumped to. You see, it's critical in order for us to be able to pick the right battles that we learn to guard our heart. Because if we don't guard our heart, then our heart will lie to us. It will paint a distorted picture. It will use our emotions and our feelings to convince us that something is true that isn't true. And then we find ourselves in a fight that we never should have been in in the first place. If we're going to pick the right battles, we've got to learn to guard our heart. The question is this, how? How do we guard our heart? I love these verses in Psalm 119, verses 10 and 11. It says this, with my whole heart, I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander far from your commandments. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. You see, embedded in these two verses reveal the beginning teaching of what it is that we need to understand about how 
we guard our heart. The first thing that we need to understand in order to guard our heart, we need to see God in all things. Remember what the verse said? Oh Lord, with my whole heart, I have sought you. You see, the problem is, is that a lot of us, if we are followers of Jesus, if we're believers, if there's been, if we've been moved from being spiritually dead to being spiritually alive, what happens is, is we begin to weigh out and measure out what things that we want to seek God for. And what happens when we begin to believe that God may be against something that we want or, or maybe redirecting us from a direction that we really want to go, what happens is, is it's not usually that we go and ask God and God goes, no, and we go, well, screw you, God. I'm going to do what I want to anyway. No, no, no. You see, we think that we're way too cunning for that. We think that we're like a four-year-old trying to explain how and why they're going to get some, some candy. We just go, well, I'd rather ask for forgiveness than permission. I'm not gonna talk to God about that. I'm not gonna pray about that because I'm pretty sure I know what God's already gonna say. I'm not gonna study God's word on what God might have to say about that because God might might lead me somewhere that I don't wanna go to do something I don't wanna do. This is in opposition of what's really in my heart. Scripture says, Lord, with my whole heart, I have sought you. You see, if we're gonna guard our heart, we've gotta seek God in all things. And the second thing that we've gotta do is we've gotta store up God's word in our heart. We've got to become familiar with God's word so that we can know what God's word says. Now listen, I'm going to talk a whole lot more about this next week, but I just want to, I just want to continue to, to lay the breadcrumbs of what we've been talking about because throughout this series, I've been talking to you about people who are spiritually mature and people who are spiritually immature. And the amount of time that you've been following Jesus is not the measure of your maturity. It's the closeness that you have to Jesus that is the measure of your maturity. You see, here's the deal. Spiritually mature people have gotten to a point of being spiritually mature because they have devoted themselves to following Jesus and seeking him in all things. Spiritually mature people have devoted themselves to trying to understand God's word and have gotten past the excuses of, I don't have time, gotten past the excuses of, I don't know what it says, and they've been hungry to grow in their relationship with God, and they've talked to people, they've purchased resources, they've gone online to find resources to help them understand and unpack God's word. Spiritually mature people have planted themselves in the church of God. They've planted themselves in biblical community. They've planted themselves by serving and volunteering. The spiritually mature people have sought the Lord to discover how they're wired and what their purpose is. And spiritually mature people are looking for opportunities as they go throughout their everyday life to try to make a difference. And spiritually mature people experience more victory than spiritually immature people. Spiritually immature people don't devote time to trying to understand God's word. Spiritually immature people don't seek God in all things. They just seek God in some things. They don't plant themselves in the church. They don't try to understand how they're wired and what they're wired for. And they're not thinking about as they go through their life, how can I make a difference in this moment, in this place, at this time with these people right now? 
and spiritually immature people fight the same amount of battles as spiritually mature people, but the difference is, is that spiritually mature people are able to handle those battles with more confidence and more grace and experience more victory and seemingly have more energy and enthusiasm for life than spiritually immature people. Not because spiritually immature people face more battles, but because spiritually immature people have not devoted themselves to the disciplines of growing closer to Jesus to understand how to pick the right battles, to understand how to experience victory. And so they, they, they avoid the victories or they, they, they avoid the battles that they're supposed to be in because spiritually mature people are able to pick the battles and not waste energy and effort and stuff on battles that they were never intended to fight. And I'm not trying to talk down to spiritually immature people in the room. I'm simply trying to paint a picture for you today that if you are a spiritually immature person and you are worn out and exhausted by the things of life, if you feel like you keep fighting battle after battle after battle, but never experience victory, the lack of victory in your life has nothing to do with the power of our God or his goodness for you. It has everything to do with how you are choosing to align your life to King Jesus, to grow in your relationship with King Jesus so that when King Jesus says, this area of your life has already been won, the victory is yours, you can begin to understand, okay, well then I'm gonna make sure that I focus whatever energy I have on that battle and not wasting it on battles that have nothing to do with me. I want you to experience more victory in your life. I want you to understand the significance of being spiritually mature and devoting yourself to those things so that you know how to guard your heart so that you pick the right battles. But here's the second thing that we have to understand, the second choice, is we also have to pick the right strategy. We have to pick the right strategy. Our approach is what you think of in evaluating the opponent or the situation. But strategy is how you attack the opponent or you attack the situation. How on earth are we supposed to pick the right strategy? This is gonna be really confusing to you. You don't. Preacher man, that don't make no sense. Did you read your notes right? You just told me I need to pick the right strategy and then I asked you, how do I do that? And you said, you don't. This is where things get uncommon. See, you are not God. You are not capable of knowing all of the right things to do in every situation, in every conflict, with every person all the time. You can't do it. Would you turn to your neighbor right now and just lovingly encourage them, you aren't God. Just tell them right now. Just turn and look at them. You aren't God. You see, here's the good news, though. When you are in relationship with the God who scripture says is the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the one who was and is and is to come, who is the creator of heaven and earth, who is the righteous king of kings and Lord of lords. He is all knowing and all powerful and all present that he holds the cosmos and everything that is in it in the palm of his hand. He has every single star named and not only does he have every star named, but he knows how many hairs are on your head. He knit you together and formed you so that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. He created you and why you on purpose for a purpose. He's always before you. He's behind you and he's with you. He is present with you in every situation, in every moment, in every conflict, always. When you have a relationship with that God, you don't have to stress about picking the right strategy. All you have to do is you have to focus on making sure that you obey Jesus always. We 
You go, I don't know if that works for me. You see, the problem when you start doing this is Jesus is gonna lead you to do some things that aren't going to make sense. Once you consider for a moment in the Old Testament, a dude named Joshua, you can turn to Joshua 6. We're gonna be there in just a second. In Joshua chapter six, we meet a dude named Joshua. Joshua was chosen to be the leader of the nation of Israel after Moses died. And he's, he's leading them across the Jordan River and they're getting ready to go into a land that God had promised them. God had promised them a land that flows with milk and honey. It's an exceedingly good land. But God said, here's the problem. There are people who live in the land who are vile, evil people. They worship vile, evil gods. And in the act of their worship to their gods. They do all types of vile, evil, strange things, odd sexual acts with other people and family members and animals. They sacrifice and kill their children and burn their children alive at the altar of these false gods in the belief that these false, evil gods will do something for them. And it's your job, it's your responsibility. The land is yours, but you've got to go in and you've got to take possession of it. And you're going to have to drive the people that are in it out. At the end of Joshua chapter five, as they're getting ready to embark on this journey, Joshua has an incredible encounter with Jesus. One of the few moments in the Old Testament where Jesus shows up before he was born. Scholars refer to these moments as the pre-incarnate Christ, the moments where Jesus appears physically before he's born to Mary and put into a manger. These are also referred to as Christophanies. You can use that word this week and make yourself sound really smart. Christophanies. What happens is, is Joshua comes face to face with Jesus and and Jesus basically says, listen, Joshua, you're getting ready to go do this thing, but if you wanna experience it, you gotta do it my way. Joshua goes, okay, but here's what you have to understand about Joshua. Joshua is a skilled and accomplished military tactician. He has won many battles as a military leader, as the front lines of the battle. Joshua is very aware how to deploy troops, how to surround a city, what tactics and strategies work best in different scenarios. And Jesus tells Joshua, Joshua, if you want to experience the victory, you gotta do it my way. And Joshua's like, sure, good. I mean, I'm a fan of, I'm a fan of military strategy. Man, I'd love to hear what your strategy is, Jesus. Tell me, are we going to flank them on the side and send Charlie Company this way and Bravo Company up that way? How are we going to do it, Jesus? And Jesus says this in Joshua chapter 6 and verse 2. It says, And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand, its king and the mighty men of valor. I just want to pause here for just a second because there are some things in your life that you are fighting against that you believe are hopeless. But I believe the Lord is telling you today that if you are obediently pursuing me, that battle, it is already won. You're going to have to go fight it. But as long as you fight it my way, the outcome is already determined. Victory is guaranteed, but you got to go through the motions. That's what Jesus is telling Joshua. Then Joshua's like, yeah, got it. Awesome. Great. Jesus, let me sit down. Imagine Joshua's got his parchment and and quill ready to take some notes. All right, Jesus, I'm ready to learn. What's the military strategy? I don't know yet. And Jesus goes, I got it for you, Joshua. Are you taking notes? Are you ready? It's going to blow your mind. It's going to be the best military strategy you've ever heard in in, in your entire life. It's going to be awesome. You're going to win overwhelmingly, and it's not going to cost you anything. Joshua goes, sweet, I'm in. This is what Jesus says. You shall march around the city, all your men of war. You shall go all around the city once, and this you will do for six days. And the seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. But the seventh day, 
You shall march around the city seven times and the priest shall blow the trumpets. And it shall come to pass when they make a long blast with the ram's horn and when you hear the sound of the trumpet that all the people shall shout with a great shout. And then the wall of the city will fall down flat and the people shall go up every man straight before him. And Joshua's going... Okay, so let me get this straight. You don't want me to send my men in with their weapons. You want me to send the marching band in. We're gonna walk around. We're doing recon, right? That's what we're doing, reconnaissance. That's, that's what it is. Okay, I got it. We're doing recon around the walls of the city, trying to find the weak spots. I get it, I get it. Yeah, and what next? And Jesus goes, you can do that seven days, six days. Wow, six days, that's a lot of recon. Seems a little bit, okay. And then what do we do after that? And then Jesus goes, here's the deal. On the seventh day, you're gonna walk around the city again. Ooh, all right, that's a whole lot of walking and a lot of instrument playing. All right, and now what? And then at the seventh time, wait, hold up. We gotta walk around seven times on the seventh day? Yes, yeah, seven times on the seventh day, but trust me, it's gonna be awesome. This is what you're gonna do next. Are you ready? Okay, I'm taking notes. All right, and then everybody, when you finish the seventh time, turn around and tell them to blow their, hump, their trumpets and everybody else yell, ha! and the wall is going to fall down. I'm concerned you don't understand how walls are built, Jesus. Perhaps you overestimate, like, we're not X-Men. We can't just, ah, and stuff just blows over. It'd be awesome. Can we get that? Can I get that in writing? Jesus goes, no, 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 Joshua. I need you to understand that in this first battle, how you experience the victory in the first battle will teach you something about how to experience victory in every battle that comes. You see, you can fight this battle on your own and you might win. It's gonna cost you a lot. And in so doing, it's gonna create an overinflated view of yourself. And it's gonna cause you to think that no matter the odds, no matter the situation, no matter the circumstance, you have it within you to be able to win the battle. But the problem that I have with that is these people aren't your people, they're my people. And I love my people. And I need you to have a necessary understanding of a dependence upon me so that I can give you the victory that I promised you to have. You see, I believe that God is telling somebody today that, that in order for you to experience the victory that Jesus wants you to have, you're gonna have to be willing to do the strange things that Jesus is asking you to do. That means that when you know that Jesus is telling you to forgive somebody for what they said or what they did to you, no matter how much it hurt, no matter how much it impacted you, no matter the wounds and the scars that you still carry, when God tells you to forgive them, you better forgive them. Because if you don't, then you'll continue to live in the agony of defeat and the constant reminder of what they did for you. And you'll continue to believe that the poison of unforgiveness that you drank is going to hurt them. But it's not. It's only gonna hurt you. And if God tells you to forgive them, he's not doing it so that they can win something. He's telling you to forgive them so that you can win something and you can begin to move forward. If God is telling you today, when Jesus tells you to go serve and be kind to your terrible boss, and admittedly they may be awful, then you better serve them and you better be kind to them. Why? 
Because if you don't, then you'll continue to hate your job, you continue to hate your work, and you'll continue to believe that they are the ones that have the power over you to dictate whether or not you have joy in the work that you do, you find purpose in the work that you do. And as long as you continue to treat them with with unkindness and continue to believe, well, they're a terrible boss, they're gonna get what they deserve, this, that, and the other, then here's what you're gonna do. Then you are gonna continue to give them the authority to affect the career trajectory that you are on. Jesus is telling you to go apologize to your spouse, to your parents, to your kids. You better do it. Because if not, then you're gonna continue to create an environment of chaos and destruction where everybody's gonna continue to walk around on eggshells instead of an environment of peace where people can live in, in unity and harmony and love for one another. And you can continue to say, I ain't doing it. I ain't saying I'm not apologizing. I do it all the time first and I ain't doing it. They're gonna have to do it this time. About a month ago, I was having one of those situations. Jessica and I had a conflict over something. I don't even remember what it was now. And I'm getting ready for bed and and God's telling me, you need to go apologize. I ain't doing it. Mm -mm. Nope, the last three times I was the first one to apologize. I ain't giving in anymore. I'm not gonna give her that, that confidence and that, that pleasure of feeling like I bow down. She wins. God goes, okay. Well, let me know what victory feels like as long as you continue to not apologize. Let me know how the, how the, how the, the coldness and the, and the distance and, you know, I've got needs. Yeah. Let me know how those go getting met. Mm-hmm. You see, if you want to experience the victory that Jesus has already told you belongs to you, you've got to be willing to do the things that Jesus leads you to do. How do we obey Jesus always? Isaiah 26, 8 tells us. It says this, yes, Lord, walking in the way of your truth, we wait eagerly for you. Your name and your renown are the desire of our souls. You know what it starts with? It starts with the word yes. The rest of the verse is is talking about our posture and our position in relationship to understanding who we are and where we sit on on the totem pole in relationship to King Jesus. It's not my fame, it's not my glory, it's not my renown, Jesus, it's your fame, it's your glory and your renown and I will obey you, yes, Lord. This is the reason why I talked about this last week as well. This is the reason why our first core value as a church is follow Jesus. We define it by saying that we lay our yes on the table. We throw caution to the wind. We hold nothing back because there is no plan B. Listen, here's the deal. Our core values as a church, I hope that you'll see, these aren't just something that we just write on the wall that sound really nice. It's what we're striving to be. It's who we're striving to to be. It's what we're striving to be said about us, that we would be kinds of people that whether we're at church or we're at work or in our neighborhood, that we would live in such a way that people would be able to say, man, that is a person that follows Jesus. And by saying that we put our yes on the table, just like I said last week, it's that I take my yes that I often hold so tightly to and I put it on the table and I say, Jesus, before you ever even ask the question, before you ever even give the instruction, the yes is already there. You take it. I'm already moving. Just tell me where I'm moving to. You see, here's what we have to understand. 
Obedience to Jesus is always, always, always the best strategy for victory. It doesn't matter what the conflict is. It doesn't matter what the battle is. It doesn't matter what the hardship is. Obedience to Jesus is always the best strategy for victory. So let me ask you this question. What is the last thing that you know Jesus told you to do? You see, I think that there are some people that are here today that are experiencing some defeats instead of some victories because you know the last thing Jesus told you to do and you left that place to go do your own thing. You see, here's the deal. Life is gonna be hard and you are going to experience some losses along the way. And those losses are not a reflection upon the goodness or ability of God. Those losses are a reflection upon his love for you so that you can continue to be reminded that you are not God. And he will allow you to experience losses when you depart from him so that you can be reminded of the victory that's possible when you come back to him. And so I'm asking you today, what is the last thing that you know that Jesus told you to do? Was it to forgive somebody? Was it to repent of an area of sin? Was it to um, go serve somebody? Was it to go be at a certain place? You see, it's hard to experience the victories that Jesus has provided for us when we walk away from the position of victory into the position of defeat through disobedience. So what do we learn today? We've learned today that we've got to pick the right battles by guarding our heart through prayer and storing up God's word in our heart. We've learned that we've got to pick the right strategy by obeying Jesus always and putting our yes on the table. And I promise you, if you will do these things and align your life to these truths, I promise you, you will begin to experience more victory in your life. But all of this comes with a major assumption that you are here today and you have already experienced the most significant victory of your life that Jesus wants you to have. The victory over sin and the victory over death. You see, I love what 1 Corinthians 15 says. This is what happens. This is the confidence that we can have in Christ. It says, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ, our Lord. You see, Jesus came to die on a cross and to experience what from everybody who was there saw it looked like a defeat so that he could go to the grave and come back from the grave on the third day to experience a victory that nobody could have seen coming and nobody could have ever offered for themselves or anybody else. You see, it's a victory over sin and the consequences of sin. It's a victory over death and the, and the fear of death. It's a victory that enables us to be able to experience true freedom and the joy that we talked about earlier in the service. And it's a victory that's only made possible when you trust in Jesus for salvation. I just want to ask you today, do you know him? Have you experienced this victory in your life? Can I tell you, if you never experienced this victory, then the victories that you're hoping for will likely never come because you've not aligned yourself with the grand champion of creation, 
King Jesus. If you don't know him today, I would love to give you an opportunity to receive him as your Savior. At Discover Church, we exist to see our city changed by Jesus, one life at a time. If you'd like to take your next step of faith today, text the word FAITH to 816-203-1835. Again, that's the word FAITH to 816-203-1835. If this is your first time listening, we'd love to connect. Reach out to us on social media and let us know that you've found us through the Discover Church podcast. Thanks for listening.